Okay. We spent a few weeks talking about um, the reality of the ability <clears throat> of the church to fall away, to, to hold on to the outward forms and and activities and, and even beliefs, words, uh, but to to lose uh, the the experience of the spirit of Christ. And I think that that the word that describes that in scripture is apostasy. But I think that you don't have to know that word or, or be familiar with that concept to um, be familiar with the reality that it's, it's very possible and very common to hold on to the outward aspects of Christianity and to lose the inward life and, and spirit of it. I think this is largely what Jesus himself was dealing with his own churches about in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, telling them that they had lost their first love, for instance, or that they thought that they were rich and uh, wise and in need of nothing, but really they were poor, miserable, wretched, blind, and naked. And and <clears throat> and uh, if that is if that was a, a reality in the church that the apostles of Christ planted. And that was the perspective of Christ by his spirit dealing with the churches um, at, in, in the first century that were, that were established by the, that by the apostles and in the spirit of God. Then certainly it is a, a reality and a possibility and, and I think a, a very common reality in the churches today. And we could go on, I don't want to do that, um, but we could go on describing different ways and, and different realities that ha I think um, have been lost or have been left behind uh, as people have, generally speaking, <clears throat> lost their guide or lost, the, or lost their first love or come to think that by having the outward words, they automatically have the inward life and spirit. We could describe a lot of the different uh, problems that have been caused by that falling away. But I'd, I'd rather, I, I kind of felt today maybe to go on um, and talk a little bit about <clears throat> how to come out of that condition. If we find ourselves in that condition, um, how do we come out of that condition? There's there's two really large chunks of the Old Testament that have to do with, well, there's a, actually there's a bunch of different stories, but two large s sections of Old Testament scripture that have to do with coming out of something. There's coming out of Egypt, which is a large, as you know, it's a, it's a, a story that coming out of Egypt and coming into the promised land and inheriting the promised land, that, that's a, a large portion of the Old Testament. There's another large portion that has to do with coming out of Babylon, first being taken captive in Babylon, and then all that takes place in Babylon under that captivity, and then the return from Babylon to uh, to Israel. And both of those are really uh, full of descriptions in, in a lot of different pictures and shadows of what it means for our hearts to come out of, um, well, in Egypt to come out of our natural condition and, and death and darkness and slavery to sin 
and in Babylon to come out of a captivity in, in a foreign land where we've lost something of the Lord. We've lost the, the Lord's the experience of the Lord, and we've fallen into something of, of Babylon, which is man's man-made confusing uh, religion or captivity in, in, in uh, an attempt to know God and, and to be just like in the Tower of Babel, an attempt to ascend to the heavens through the efforts and uh, unified efforts of the flesh. And, and so I guess the thing I want to consider today and just talk maybe just uh, say a few things about is what, it, what does it mean or how, how does the heart come out of that condition? How does the heart come out of the condition where it has become familiar with the words of Christ, but it is very unfamiliar with the life and spirit of Christ? And I think the the first thing that all of us need, or the most important thing, if if I had to to say what I think is the most important thing, I think I would say it is a familiarity with the Spirit of God. It, it, is, it begins by a, a finding, a knowing, a feeling, an experiencing, uh, a being led by, a being taught by the Spirit of God. If, if anything in our Christianity doesn't uh, come from the Spirit or have the life of the Spirit or the direction of the Spirit or the nature of the Spirit or the working of the Spirit, then it is just of the flesh and is not acceptable to God. And there's so many different ways that that is declared in the strongest words and the strongest pictures possible throughout Scripture. That that which God accepts is definitely in man and it and it works in man and it becomes the the nature that's working working in man but it doesn't come from man it's the working of of god's spirit in man and not the working of man's flesh apart from the spirit and and that that shouldn't sound like a strange thing to us because i think in the natural realm we all understand that like for instance a soil if you if you have a if you have a garden, <clears throat> there's nothing that the farmer can actually um, reap from the soil uh, of itself. The soil cannot produce its own harvest without first receiving something, and then bringing forth or allowing the increase of that thing. The soil is absolutely important, and it gets to, in our case, it gets to reap the benefits of and experience all the goodness of what God sows into us and works into us by his spirit. But in and of itself, the soil can't actually do that. It doesn't have the ability to produce tomatoes. It can't do that without receiving the seed. It can't produce corn. It can't produce any kind of increase or vegetable. And and it's the same principle with man. Everything that God is seeking to do in us and is wanting to see increasing in us and growing in us and and um, glorifying him through us is the the increase of that one perfect 
thing that he gives to us. And that is, uh, I think that's a real foundational, real fundamental thing that that is so so important to understand. The difference, again, we've talked about this before, even in these little meetings, but the difference between flesh and spirit. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. The flesh profits nothing. The spirit gives life. There is a mind of the flesh that cannot know the things of the spirit, Paul says. Their foolishness. He says there is a nature of flesh that cannot please God. That those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They cannot submit to the will of God. It's a fallen nature that lives in and for self. It's contrary to the spirit of God. And therefore, again, everything that everything that is good and perfect doesn't begin from below. It begins from above. It comes down. I think we maybe in one of these, I, I get some of my meetings mixed up where we've talked about what, but I think maybe in one of these we talked about the, 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 the multitudes of scriptures that talk about that reality. James says, every good and perfect thing comes down, descends from the Father of lights. It doesn't start below, it starts above and it comes down and it works and it creates its own image and creates its own fruits and produces a change and a transformation of of the heart of man, but it doesn't start below, it starts above. And, and and he says that in the context of where he's saying that the wisdom that's from below is sensual, earthly, and demonic. Jesus, when asked, when, when, when I think flippantly called a good teacher, stopped the young man and said, why do you call me good? There's only one good, and that is God. So are you are you calling me good without because you recognize that that's in fact what I am or that's the source of all that I'm doing and saying? Or are you just throwing out the way the word good like most people do? Because there's only one good and that is God. John the Baptist says, a man can receive nothing except that is given to him from heaven. I think we looked in a, a few, maybe when we were talking about worship a little bit, we looked at that scripture in Isaiah 45, 8, which... Um, I never get tired of reading it, so I'm going to do that. <clears throat> Rain down, you heavens, from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open, let them bring forth salvation, and let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. And so coming out of Egypt or coming out of Babylon requires the, the giving of something. It requires the presence and the growth and the increase of something that comes down, that rains down from above. And, and, and so it, it, for us as Christians, we have to understand that the, the primary thing that in order to actually grow, not just to grow in mental knowledge of, of verses, but to grow in actual spiritual life and nature, to actually be changed, to actually become something different than just flesh, to become something different than the natural man. What we need is we, we need a familiarity with the Spirit of God. 
We need to experience that spirit. We need to learn to follow that spirit. We need to learn to walk in the spirit. If you if you type into your Bible program, if you have a Bible program, just type in a couple phrases like in the spirit in the New Testament. I actually wrote down a few of these verses. You're going to... Um, you're going to you're going to find that we are told to walk in the spirit we're told to pray in the spirit we're warned that it's possible in galatians chapter 3 to begin in the spirit but to try then to become come to maturity in the flesh we're told to live in the spirit we're told to worship god in the spirit Putting no confidence, Paul says, in the flesh. We are those who worship God in the spirit and have no confidence in in our flesh. We're told to love in the spirit. There's a whole bunch of verses that talk about that. If you type in the phrase, by the spirit, then there's a whole lot of other verses that that, um, appear. We're told to be led by the spirit to put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit, Romans 8.13. Put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. We're, we're, it says that we're uh, to be washed, sanctified, and justified by the Spirit. There's a covenant that's supposed to be written on our heart by the finger of God, by the Spirit, it says, by the Spirit. We're supposed to be transformed into the same image by the Spirit. It speaks in several places of truth being revealed by the Spirit, of us being sanctified by the Spirit. Um, How do we know that we abide in Him, John says, by the Spirit that He's been given, that's been given to us? And uh, all of that, I think, is familiar to a lot of us as words. And I remember remember a time um, in my life back when I lived in Kansas City, I remember reading those scriptures and them feeling very familiar to my mind, but very, very foreign to my heart. There was a a time where that really bothered me. And I'm glad it bothered me. But it really did bother me. And it made me doubt. It made me, and and I don't, I mean, it made me doubt my own condition and have fear about my own condition. And some people would say, well, then that's the devil or that's the enemy, you know, trying to give you doubt and, and fear. But in my case, the the doubts and the fears about my condition, I think, were were right. It was right for me to to have some fears and some doubts about being so unfamiliar with all of these all of these phrases that I just read to you. I don't think it's wrong for us to to have questions and doubts and even fears about whether or not we're actually experiencing the things that we're believing. Whether they're coming to be more and more real to us. I'm not saying that we have to all be perfectly fully grown or have these things be completely understood or perfectly experienced. But if, like like in my case, if I was reading them and talking about them and, and preaching, trying to preach about them to homeless people and stuff like that, and yet was, was still very far from being able to say that I knew the experience of them, then I think there's a, there's a good place uh, for, not to bring us into self-analysis uh, and self-condemnation. 
self shouldn't be involved in this, uh, but to bring us to a place where our hearts are willing to be taught by the Lord, corrected by the Lord, reproved by the Lord, instructed by the Lord, led by the Lord, out of that condition where these things are so foreign and far from our experience. I'm super happy that I let the Lord bring those questions and doubts to me, even though it brought me through a real uh, difficult time uh, in my life where I had to continue to come to him for a long time and say, what, what's wrong? I believe these things, but I don't know them. And uh, they're not just supposed to be unexperienced beliefs or verses that we know are in the Bible and can quote. These are Paul wasn't just describing, here's what you need to believe. You have to believe that we're supposed to be led by the Spirit. You know, that doesn't even make sense, really. He wrote about being led by the Spirit so that we would learn to be led by the Spirit, not that we would just believe that Christians should be led by the Spirit. And, and I say that because... Um, I, I, there, there's oftentimes in, in me and in, in other people, there's a resistance to talking about a familiarity, an experiential familiarity with the spirit that I've, I've seen, I've bumped into in, in a bunch of people. P- people think it's mystical or that, um, you know, you don't have to, you don't, th- those experiences are for apostles and for prophets or, and I would say, adamantly that that all of these experiences were written to everybody in the church and therefore everybody in the church the jesus said that the scriptures he he clearly evidenced that he believed everything that had been written in the scriptures and said that this was done and that was done so that the scriptures would be fulfilled but he also clearly said and showed in a number of ways that the scriptures in themselves point to a life. And he, and he condemned the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes for searching the scriptures and yet not coming to experience that life. So how do you, how do you begin to find, so if, if walking in the spirit and being led by the spirit and taught by the spirit and becoming familiar with the spirit is so, so important, how do you begin to find and feel the spirit of God? That's such an important question to ask. That's an important question for all of us to not ask me, but ask the Lord. Bring your hearts before the Lord and ask him. I want to be familiar with your spirit. I want to know your spirit. I want to find it what it means to walk in your spirit, to be taught by your spirit, to be changed by your spirit. What does it mean to find and feel, to feel the, the spirit of God? I think, and I think that the answer to, the, to that question begins, I won't pretend to even come close to giving a full um, description of all that that means, but I think that it begins by descending in our own hearts in humility and meekness and smallness in our own sight. It begins by descending in, in desperation, in hunger, 
to, to the low appearance of the spirit. And what I mean by to the low appearance of the spirit is that we often expect it to be some kind of, we expect it to begin as some kind of a, like a, maybe the word high doesn't really work, but glorious, undoubtable um, manifestation of something um, amazing. We think, well, it's the spirit of God. It's got to, it's got to blow my mind. You know, it's got to it's got to do something in me that is um, remarkable, powerful, c- clearly undoubtable. And yet, my experience, and I believe what the scriptures declare, and a lot of different pictures, and also in a, a lot of different clear statements, is that the spirit of the work of the spirit of God. Doesn't, he doesn't march into our Jerusalem with fanfare and with a huge army and, and, and declaring, uh, here I am in glory and power and majesty. You can't doubt that I'm here. He, he marches into the Jerusalem of our heart low on a little donkey and he walks into the temple and he begins to point out inside of us things that shouldn't be there. In other words, he, his inward appearance of the spirit of Jesus is very similar to his outward appearance. I 100% believe in and love and know that it was absolutely necessary for that outward appearance. But I'm saying that there's a parallel between the way that Jesus came outwardly to Israel. He didn't, they were all expecting the Messiah, especially at that time. Because of John the Baptist's ministry, because of the, uh, because of the, uh, the, the prophecy, I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, but the, there's a prophecy in the book of Daniel where, where Daniel is told by the angel the exact time that the Messiah would come. And uh, he talks about the, 77s or 70 70 years of seven or how do you say that 70 whatever groups of seven years it's like you know 490 years or or minus one seven basically it's it's a little bit tricky it's definitely tricky for me to try to remember exactly how it is right now but it landed on the year that christ made himself manifest It, it, it was not a um I'm tempted to just turn there and talk about that, but the the, the coming of the Messiah was was completely expected at the at the time of Jesus, uh, because of the prophecy of Daniel, because of the appearance of some miracles like the star over Bethlehem and the Magi coming and Herod trying to kill a bunch of people that were supposed to be a bunch of babies that were supposed to be the Messiah, and John the Baptist sent as a as a voice out in the wilderness that was saying that there's one coming that I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. And, and, and the people were in great expectation for the Messiah. Why am I talking about this? Oh yeah. Because when he came, um, sorry, I lost myself there because when he came, it was not, Everyone was waiting for him. Everyone knew he was coming. Nobody was planning on rejecting the Messiah. Everybody would say that they loved the Messiah, but they didn't love how he came. They didn't love how he appeared. They didn't understand that he appeared. He how, he came as a baby in a, in a manger in, in, in Bethlehem without any 
outward fanfare, although there was some angelic fanfare going on. And he was immediately, um, uh, he was, it, 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 it was, as a small baby, Herod came after him to snuff him out before he got to be anything that anyone would pay attention to. And he went around and, and he, he didn't ever do anything that the flesh ex- expected or wanted him to do. And even when he did miracles, which obviously affected the outward man, it was always with the attention of, of turning the heart of the inward man. And when people gathered around him, I mean, he, it was, it's interesting to watch him or to, to watch how he responded, how he would hide himself from the crowds or how he would tell people, don't talk about this, or how he would go up on the mountain and pray or how he would disappear from their sight and spend time with his father and how he just constantly didn't do the things that they were expecting. But what he did do and what he constantly did was to show them and to tell them that the inside of the cup was dirty and and that the the uncleanness doesn't come from eating with hands that weren't washed but comes from something in the human heart it starts on the inside and he would say to his brothers you, you, you know you, you, your time is always ready because you walk according to your own time my time is not yet ready and then he said that um, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me. And here's why it hates me. Because I testify of it, that its deeds are evil. Now see, nobody wanted to, not nobody, obviously some people did, but they didn't want to descend. They didn't want to come down to that low appearance of the Messiah. If you were to ask anyone in Israel at the time of Jesus, did you hate the appearance of the Messiah? Nobody would say yes. They just would say that Christ's appearance wasn't the, the Messiah. But they all would say that they loved the appearance of the Messiah. Well, fast forward 2,000 years. Would anyone today say that they hate the appearance of the Son of God? No. They would just say that the appearance of the Son of God, the way he appears in us, isn't Christ. That's how you get away from it. That's how you get around it. It's the exact same thing. Well, how did he come then? He came lowly, meek. He didn't cry out in in some great announcement of his greatness. He actually, when Peter said, "I, I know you're the son of God, he says, don't tell that to anybody. That's not how I'm manifesting myself. I'm not declaring outwardly who I am. I'm offering something to anyone that's hungry to find it in, in me. And it starts with a recognition of your condition. It starts by seeing and feeling that your heart is contrary to me. That's why John the Baptist had to come first. And that's the way in which John the Baptist prepared the way. You see, until man, you think how, 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 if you could imagine this in your head or you do a Disneyland or, or, or a Hollywood version of this, how do you prepare the way for the coming son of God? 
You know, what, what would what would make sense to the carnal mind? Well, you make them a big banquet, you roll out the red carpet, you get the trumpets blasting. What did what did what did John the Baptist do to make a way for the to make it so that some people in Israel would recognize the coming of the Son of God? He didn't do any of that. He called them a brood of vipers. He told them not to boast in who they were according to the flesh because God was going to lay the axe to the root of the tree, of that whole Adamic natural man tree. He told them to, to, to do acts in keeping with repentance. He called them all to see what they were and, and to repent and to, to do humble uh, acts before the Lord that showed that their hearts were turned to the Lord. If you have two tunics, give one to that guy. If you're in this position of, of being a tax collector, don't exact more than you absolutely need to. Live righteously and, and, and humbly before God. And then you might not miss him when he comes. And if you don't go low to that appearance, being willing to truly turn and repent, you're going to miss him. And, and here, here's an interesting verse. I don't know if you guys have ever noticed this verse. Uh, Luke chapter 7. This is, this is so interesting. So, so this is at the end of where Jesus is saying to the people, you know, who's John the Baptist? Who did you go out to see? A reed shaken by the wind. And he says all that. And he says, for I say to you among those born of a woman, this is in verse 28, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. Now listen to this next verse. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. He, they rejected God's will. Why? How? By not coming down to that place where you say, I am a brood of vipers. I can't boast in my natural lineage. I have to be made something by God. And I am not that right now. And you could, the Pharisees and the, and the, and the lawyers could say, well, all I did was not get baptized by John. And, and Jesus says, no, you actually rejected the purpose. You rejected the will of God for yourself. Do you see what I'm saying? And that's because in order to find the will of God for yourself and feel and know the will of God for yourself, you have to come down to where you begin to agree with what God is actually doing and saying. What is God actually doing and saying? He's saying that he needs to make something, to plant something, to form something, to give something in you that is not of you. And you need to learn how to follow it and be changed by it and love its appearing and repent before it. And what is it? It is my spirit. It is the gift of the spirit of God. And so 
why did so many in the first century not recognize Christ? I think it's plain that they did not love how he appeared. There's a scripture where where Paul says that a crown is laid up for me, and not only for me, but everyone who loves his appearing. Who loves his appearing? That's a really good question to ask ourselves. Do I love his appearing? If you just think about a future outward appearing, it's easy to to think that you're going to love Jesus when he flies out of the sky. But what about that appearing in you that, that, that begins to, to make you see and realize that by, by your first birth, you don't have the right life and nature and light? What, what about that appearing that shows us that our deeds are, are evil? What about that appearing that manifests, Ephesians 5.13, all things that are reprovable? What about that appearing? Do you love that appearing? Because I'm, I'm pretty sure that Paul was talking about that appearing. 2,000 years have gone by and no one has seen yet uh, Jesus appearing in the sky. But there's a crown of righteousness laid up for everyone in the last 2,000 years who have loved another appearing of Christ that is very easy to overlook and to hate. Paul in Ephesians says that uh, apart from Christ, man is darkness. John chapter 1 talks about how his light shines in that darkness. We, I think we talked about a few weeks ago, um, you know, what is man in the fall? Man is a soul that has lost everything that made it good. It's lost its light, it's lost its righteousness, it's lost its love, it's lost the presence and power and love and life of God. It, it has died to those things. In the day that you eat of that tree, you will surely die. Man lost all that was, was God when he turned from God and began to seek a life outside of God. And that's why he has said, afterwards to say every thought and intent of man's heart is only evil all the time apart from god working in man that soul then turns outward to the outward creation where it was meant to manifest the life of god and it begins to take to itself the things outwardly for self so so that's the condition of man and man in that condition cannot do Good, because good is from God. What he can do is he can receive with meekness the good that is implanted by God. James one twenty one. receive with meekness that implanted word which is able to save your souls. Or he can resist it. That's what man can do in that, in that fallen condition. Man has no power to produce righteousness or produce heavenly light or produce the things of the Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit. But what he can do is he can receive and cling to and let the Lord work in him both to will and to work for his good pleasure, or he can resist. And because that's true, when goodness comes... When goodness appears, when I say goodness, I mean Christ. I mean Christ the light. I mean the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ. When it comes in the, in the heart, man can, man can love it 
and get down real low and say, you are better than me. Work in me, teach me, lead me, guide me, fill me, change me. All the things that I, I, we, we looked at all those verses. Do all those things in me. That's what we can do. We can humbly say, ride into my temple, Jesus, and flip over all my tables and make that whip out of cords and drive out every beastly nature that's I've put in my house, your house of prayer. Do in me what, what I can't do of myself. That That's the... That's one thing we can do, or or we can resist it. And how do you how do you resist it? Because again, nobody says they resist it. Ask us, you know, go back in time, get in your time machine, go back to the first century, and ask any Pharisee if they were resisting the Messiah. They were they would say to you, "I am doing everything I do every day." in order to receive and honor the Messiah. I'm washing my hands. I'm going to temple. I'm saying these prayers. I'm, I'm strapping this phylactery onto my forehead. I'm doing everything and anything I can think of according to the law of Moses to be ready for the Messiah. And here he is right there and you're wanting to kill him. So when, when good comes to the heart of man, it comes as a light first that exposes our condition it comes as a savior that flips over our table and and drives out our cow that's that's the way it comes it comes as a as something that shows the difference between what is god and what isn't god and it does that in the heart and it calls you to repentance and I'm saying all this because far from being weird and mystical and abstract and hyper-spiritual and fanatical, the coming of the Spirit of God in man is the most necessary, normal reality that every single soul can and has to experience. And it begins by showing us what's really going on in us and you can love it when it comes and shows it shows itself to us or you can hate it and this is exactly what Jesus says in John chapter 3 here's the condemnation uh, that the world will never be condemned because it didn't see light it didn't have light here's the condemnation that light comes to the world shines in the heart and men love darkness more than light. That's the condemnation. And his appearing, his the, the first way to become familiar, going back to what I'm trying to aim at here, how do you become familiar with the Spirit of God? It starts by descending to where its first appearances are in the heart where it begins to show you and make you see and feel and recognize and, 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 and gives you this opportunity. And he does it over and over again in our lives. He doesn't just do it once and then take off. He's so kind. He's so merciful. He does it again and again. Eventually, it seems like we can become, as Paul says, past feeling. And our consciences can become uh, seared as with a hot iron. And, and, and 
and it's I guess it's it seems to be a, there's a there's a place where our hearts are so hard can become so hard that we don't even pay any attention to to these callings and stirrings and movings and shakings and awakenings and shinings. But as long as there's anything in us, I think that will respond to it. He comes again. And he makes a contrast in our hearts. And we have the ability to love it or to hate it. And this is the door. This is the, I'm going to stop here in a minute, but this is the door that we can, this is where we find him. This is where the heart of man, if you try to go in another door, you're not going to find him. If you try to hold on to your pride in your life and I'm the son of Abraham and I already know and I already understand and I know I'm this and I can do this and I can produce what God wants and I have righteousness. And if you hold on to any of that, you've missed the door. The door is still open to you as long as you want it, as long as you're willing to, to stoop down. And, 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 and like uh, Ryan mentioned that um, yesterday in his email, that, that picture of Stephen Chris kind of going through the door and he couldn't fit through it with all of his clothes on and all of his backpacks on and everything. He had to take everything off and then he, fit, and then he made it through the door. If you're willing to, to strip off all that you think you are and have, then there's a door for you, but you've got to come down low and you've got to love how he appears. And then you'll find that spirit. You'll find him right there. There he is. He's, how do you know? How do you know what a good spirit is? Well, he's the one that's showing you evil in your own heart. That which shows you evil and sin and makes a division, a contrast between it and righteousness. That's righteousness. That's what, that's what Paul's saying in Ephesians 5.13. That which makes manifest is light. Light has come, but men love darkness. And why do they love darkness? Because their deeds are evil. But if they love the light and follow the light, then they will practice the truth. And all, more and more what they do and what they what they experience will be the working of God in him. And I guess I'll maybe stop with that. I guess just to kind of introduce the subject um, uh, of being led by the Spirit, of being of becoming familiar with the Spirit, I guess is maybe that's the main thing I want to say today. today. There's a door, and it's a low door. Flesh is too big to fit through it with, with your backpack on and your, and, um, your, your suitcase full of uh, knowledge. But there... There is a way to become extremely familiar with the moving and teaching and changing of the spirit. And if, we'll, if we're willing to descend and be low, come down to it, then every single one of us can become more and more familiar with all of those in the spirit and by the spirit verses that I read in the beginning. <clears throat>